At some points, we reach the end of our resources, we reach the end of our strength, our ability, and we need something that nothing on earth can offer. We need help that comes only from heaven. And so we cry out to God in prayer. That's what the Israelites did. For 400 years, they had been in Egypt, and as time went on, their status changed from being honored guests to being oppressed slaves. They were treated with brutality. They were victims of calculated exploitation and even population control. But they cried out to God, and as we saw last time, God heard, and God saw, and God remembered, and God knew. These words at the end of Exodus chapter 2 describe not only a God who is aware of their plight, a God who who is conscious of what's going on, they describe a God who's been paying careful attention and has now decided to act. This God has made promises, and the time has come for God to fulfill those promises. The time has come for a great exodus. And what follows, beginning here in Exodus chapter 3, is the record of one of the most amazing stories in all of Scripture of God's power and God's glory and God's faithfulness. So how does this story begin? How is God going to begin to act and remember his promise to his people? It begins with God revealing himself. Revealing himself to Moses and calling Moses to be his spokesman and to lead his people out of their bondage. There's a lot of ground to cover today, but my goal is simply to walk through this story and hopefully to help you to catch a glimpse of God so that you can consider his ways, so that you can marvel at his nature, so that you can come to better understand your own experience of God's redeeming power. In verses 1 through 12, we find this story that may be familiar to you, but it is the call of Moses, and it marks a key turning point in the book of Exodus. We find the setting for this story in verse 1. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Just to catch you back up to speed here, Moses has come a long way from Egypt in more ways than one. He's no longer a prince. We find Moses is now a hired hand. And there is nothing remotely Egyptian about him any longer. Remember, the Egyptians thought that shepherds and herdsmen were unclean and an abomination to them. But Moses embraces it. He is Hebrew through and through. He's been in Midian now for 40 years. So consider, he spent 40 years in luxury in Egypt. He's now spent 40 years doing labor in the wilderness, in the land of Midian. Moses is now 80 years old. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but we have a couple people in here who are 80, a couple who are beyond it. Think about it. Moses' story is really just getting started. He may have felt like his chances were behind him, but little does he know what's about to happen Next, Moses has traveled west, verse 1 tells us, away from Midian, back towards Egypt, the place of his birth, the place where his people continued to suffer. And the text tells us that he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. This Mount Horeb is also referred to, and more commonly referred to in the Old Testament, as Sinai. And we, as the readers, know about this place. We know because the text tells us this is the mountain of God. It will be the site of Moses' encounter with God, an encounter that will form him into a leader. 
and commission him to be the deliverer. Later, this same mountain would be the site where the nation Israel would also have an encounter with God, where the nation would be formed and where they would be called to be worshipers of the one true God. These two events, the calling of Moses and the giving of the law at Sinai that happened at this mountain will shape the trajectory of the rest of the Old Testament, indeed the rest of salvation history. This is the mountain of God. But at this point, Moses has no idea about what is going to happen. He sees something that intrigues him in verses 2 through 3. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Here on the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. This word angel simply means messenger. When we hear of angels, we often think of those created spiritual beings who inhabit heaven. They worship God. They serve him. And at times throughout scripture, we see that angels function as God's representatives by relaying important messages to God's people. But on occasion, there are messages that are so important, some conversations that are so significant that God wants to deliver the message himself, that he delivers the message personally. And that's what we have here. The angel of the Lord here in Exodus chapter 3 is none other than the Lord himself. And this will soon become apparent in the dialogue because what Moses sees, he soon hears the voice of God. The Lord is the voice that will speak to him. And there's all this eye language that, that describes what God is going to do as he speaks to Moses. So this is what theologians call a theophany, a visible appearance or manifestation of God himself. So this messenger is God. This is not the only place in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is God himself. We see it multiple times in the book of Genesis. We see it in the early chapters of Joshua and in other places. We don't have time to go study them all. But I believe that these theophanies, these appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, where the angel speaks for God as God and receives worship, I believe that these are actually appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second person of the Godhead. This is the manifestation of God's presence, of whom John says in the New Testament, we have seen his glory. This messenger would later become known as the Word, the Word of God, the living Word. So how did this presence of God appear and manifest to Moses? In the form of a burning bush. You might ask, why? Why a bush? Well, it's not crystal clear, but we can see a few patterns here. In Genesis, if you remember our series through that book, we saw that the worship of God and even the presence of God was often associated with certain trees. Remember, there's altars that are built to commemorate these things that happen. The Oaks of Mamre, for example, or perhaps the Oak of Mora. And in that case, if we kind of think about this bush-tree connection, we might observe that Moses is now standing in the tradition of the patriarchs who came before him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be Moses' God as well. But there's also a bit of a wordplay here in the Hebrew language. The word for bush is very similar in its, in its syllables and even in its sound 
to the word Sinai. So there's a little bit of a remembrance here. It would help them to remember this story. There's a word play. The bush that now burns on the mountain foreshadows the fact that the mountain itself will burn with fire as the people gather to receive the law of God. Fire and smoke are often associated with God's presence throughout Genesis and throughout Exodus. In the book of Genesis, for example, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, do you remember what happens? That deep sleep falls upon him and he sees this vision as there's the pieces of of the sacrificial animals spread out along this pathway. He sees this smoking pot, this flaming torch passing between the pieces of the sacrifices. God himself swearing by himself that he will do all that he has promised. That was the presence of God in Genesis. We see it here at the burning bush. We'll see it again when the great cloud covers the mountain at the giving of the law. We'll see it when the tabernacle is completed and it is filled with brilliant light and this smoking cloud and the people have to draw back. We will see it as the pillar of fire by day, which is, or the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The presence of God leads the children of Israel through the wilderness. This is the manifestation of God's presence. And this fire is symbolic. It signifies glory. It is radiant. It is heat. It signifies power. It signifies both blessing and danger. Think about that. Fire is intriguing, isn't it? Whenever I build a campfire, I have to make sure my kids don't you know, stick their hand in it and grab it you know, when they're real small because there's something about it that's fascinating, but it's also threatening. Fire provides great blessing. It keeps us warm. It cooks our food. It can even provide power, but it's also potentially destructive. It consumes, and it can rage out of control. What a perfect way for God to manifest and display his presence as fire. As we'll see, this miracle is not just to entertain. It's not random. This isn't a parlor trick that God is using just to sort of impress Moses. This miraculous manifestation serves a purpose. It authenticates the message. A bush that burns but is not consumed, there's nothing like that in creation. The only answer can be that this is something beyond creation. This fire illustrates the power and the nature of God. So even before God tells Moses who he is, he's already showing him, showing him who he is. Moses sees this bush, likely a small thorny bush in the desert, would have likely been dry, the kind of thing that would burn fast. But Moses sees that although it is on fire, it is not burnt up. So he wants to get a closer look. He wants to figure out what's going on here. And as he approaches, he hears the voice of God. Look in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I've honestly been intimidated to preach this text to you because it is hard to do justice to what is going on here. This is profound. Moses, a man like you and me, flesh and blood like you and me, sinful and imperfect like you and me, 
is standing in the presence of God. God's initial words to Moses show us several things. The first thing that Moses has to understand is that God is holy. He says, take off your shoes because the place where you are standing is holy ground. God is separate. God is distinct. God is holy other than everything else in creation. He is pure. And you cannot just barge into his presence. If you are an ordinary, sinful, fallen, small person, a man. God is so powerful and potent, his holiness so radiant, that even the ground around the bush has become holy. This is the mountain of God. It is holy ground. It's not, it's not holy. It's not that God came here because it was holy. It's holy because God showed up. That's what made the place holy. God makes the common, the ordinary, even the dirt to be holy. His presence is what sanctifies this place. His presence will now sanctify Moses, set him apart for a purpose. And his presence will soon sanctify his people as he dwells among them. This is the holiness of God. This instruction to not come any closer is a warning to Moses. You cannot trample on God's holiness. To ignore this warning for Moses would have been to put his very life in danger. The glory of God's holiness will consume all that is unclean and impure. One of the very first things that God's holiness illuminates is that we are not holy. Moses, take off your shoes because I am holy. I've made this place holy and you are not holy. But this instruction to take off his sandals, it also shows that God desires for Moses to be in his presence. He doesn't say, Moses, turn around and go the other way. He says, no, stop right there. That's close enough. But he gives a provision for Moses to be there, to be there in the presence of his holiness. Moses can experience the holy presence of God if certain conditions are met. God says, if you will take off your shoes, humble yourself before me, acknowledge that I am holy and that I am God, then you can stay and we can have a conversation. This is what our God is like. And having given these warnings and these instructions to Moses, God now announces himself to Moses as the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And here's the implication. Moses has been on this journey, leaving Egypt behind, leaving his old life behind, leaving his old self behind. And now it becomes clear, if Moses is truly going to be a faithful Israelite, then this God, the God of his father, the God of the patriarchs, must be his God too. And just as those patriarchs were completely devoted to this God and completely trusted this God and stepped out in faith, so also Moses must listen and follow and obey. How does Moses respond to this voice coming out of the bush, to this announcement that this is the God of his fathers, to, to the realization that this God is absolutely holy and even the dirt that he's standing on is now sacred? Well, Moses responds, in verse 6, by hiding his face, it says he was afraid to look at God. I want to make clear this morning, this is not a negative response. Notice that he receives no rebuke from God, no correction from God. 
It's as if God nods and says, you're doing exactly the right thing. This is the right response. We know this is right. We see it again with the prophet Isaiah. You're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah beholds the glory of God. The angelic creatures there in the throne room cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what does Isaiah cry out? Woe is me. I am undone. Isaiah recognizes that this God is the thrice holy God, and he is a sinful man with sinful lips who dwells in the midst of a people who are sinful. And in the presence of a holy God, that spells doom for the sinful person. So Moses, like Isaiah, hides his face before the holy God. The sight of the Holy One brings to Moses a painful awareness of his own unholiness. So Moses is filled with awe, and he trembles at the knowledge of who it is that he is now speaking to, who it is in whose presence he stands. But then in verses 7 through 12, as Moses is here with his shoes off, hiding his face, God tells Moses some amazingly good news. In verses 7 through 12. Then the Lord said, I surely, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God tells Moses some amazingly good news, that he is about to act. He has seen their affliction, and he has seen the ones who are afflicting them. God knows it all. What we, the readers, have been informed of back in chapter 2, God now articulates to Moses. Moses, I know it's been 400 years. I know things have gotten difficult. I know it seems like nothing's ever going to change, but I know, I see, and I am now acting on my promise. I have remembered my covenant. Not only is God announcing to Moses that he's going to rescue these people, but he's also going to bless them. Three times he references the land, the land, the good land, the broad land, the land that now belongs to these people, but is promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. Think about this for a disenfranchised people who own no property, who are under the thumb of this oppressive regime, God is going to bring them out and save them from their suffering, but he's also going to bless them and provide for them and give them this rich inheritance. This is amazingly good news. God is not just a God who feels compassion. He is a God who acts in power to show his mercy and to keep his promises. Moses' head must have been spinning. Wow. Now is the time. Now God is going to do it. But then comes the real surprise. God says, yes, and Moses, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to do it. 
Moses responds to this shocking news to him. You're going to use me to go speak to Pharaoh and lead these people out? Look how he reacts in, in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses' response is one of humility and wonder. This is a statement of wonder. Who am I that you would choose me to do such a great thing? This isn't Moses trying to get out of it yet. He'll do that later. But that's not what this statement is communicating. This rather shows his astonishment that this honor, this great privilege would be granted to him. And I think there's also just some genuine curiosity about how this is actually going to work. Because remember, Moses has tried this before. He already tried to help the children of Israel, and it didn't go anywhere. He had failed. Moses no longer has any title or position in Egypt. He has zero leverage, zero credibility. His own people said, we're not interested in you setting yourself up to be some sort of rescuer. So Moses goes, how will this work? Who am I that you would use me to do this great thing? And notice these familiar and amazing words of God. Verse 12, he says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Yes, Moses, you are weak. Yes, Moses, you are a nobody. You are a sojourner in a foreign land taking care of someone else's sheep in the desert. But I will be with you. And this is what Moses needed to know. And this is what you and I need to know. At any given moment, our hope and our confidence is always not in ourselves, not in our ability, not in our position, not in our resources, not in our personalities or our intellect, our resourcefulness, our strength, our toughness. No, our hope and our confidence is that simply God is with us. This promise that God would be with him is, an accompan- is accompanied by a sign. It says, this will be the sign for you, verse 12, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is not the kind of sign that comes before faith to sort of create it and strengthen it. This is the kind of sign that comes after the fact to confirm faith. He's saying, Moses, trust me. Trust me. And here's what you're going to see if you do. This will prove that I have done what I have said. And this will be the sign that your task is complete. You're going to come back here, Moses, to this very place with the whole nation, and you will all together worship me. I'm sure this day started out like any other day for Moses. He probably woke up, he fixed a little breakfast, you know, put out his campfire, checked on the herd, and then got them moving you know, to make it to wherever the next grazing ground was. Never in his wildest dreams Did Moses imagine that something like this was about to happen? Think about this. Moses wasn't seeking God. He wasn't asking for this. God was seeking him. God took the initiative. God drew him to the mountain. God captured his attention with this burning bush. And now God was revealing his presence, his person, and his plan to this man, Moses. For the children of Israel to get out of Egypt, God has to act. That's how redemption always works. That's how deliverance always works. That's how grace always works. It's God's initiative. And he's doing it here. He's doing it here. But there's much more in this conversation between God 
and Moses, much more than what's already been seen at the burning bush. Because after calling Moses, we come to this second section, which is really the heart of the passage in which God reveals his name. So God calls Moses, then secondly, God reveals his name. This is verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses had questions. He's already said, Who am I that you would call me to do this? And God basically answers and says, it doesn't matter who you are because I will be with you. So then Moses comes back with a better question. Not who am I, but who are you? Who are you? You see, Moses could describe this God to his people. He's the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could describe what happened on the mountain, but claiming to have a personal commission from this God requires personal authorization. Perhaps Moses remembers that one time when he tried to intervene in Egypt and an angry Hebrew had snapped back at him, who made you prince over us? So he asks humbly, who should I say sent me? What is your name? But there's far more to this question than simply asking for information. And we have many people who've who are newer to this church, and a lot of us are getting names for the first time, but Moses is doing something more than what some of you will probably do after church and say, hi, what's your name? In Scripture, especially the Old Testament, names were closely associated with someone's character, with their very nature. A name is not just what people call you. A name was who and what you were. So Moses is asking a deep question. Who are you? He wants to rightly know and understand this God, and he wants to rightly represent him, and he wants to speak clearly in his name if he's going to do this thing with his authority. He wanted to make sure that the children of Israel had no doubt as to whose power it was that was at work here. And God gives this famous answer in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You know, it's interesting, as you read Scripture, especially up to this point, God has been called many things. Frequently, God, the word Elohim, that is what God is. There were many false gods, many lowercase g, Elohim. But this God was described as the God who provides, the God who sees, the God of armies. We find all of these these sort of titles for God throughout the book of Genesis, But here, God reveals something more than just a description, something more even than a title. God reveals his personal name. This is not just what God does. This is not just what God is like. This is who God is. He is the great I am. This is the Hebrew word for being. God is. And he alone can say, I 
am. This name, this name Yahweh, I am, appears over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It becomes the primary way that we know who it is who speaks and who it is who acts. It is Yahweh, I am. This name was so holy to the Jews that following the exile, they would not even pronounce it. Rather, they used the word Adonai, the word Lord. The New Testament follows this example, calling God the Lord. And so our English Bibles have largely respected this tradition. If you look in your Bible on your lap, you probably see those the word Lord with all capital letters. That's the way of representing this name, Yahweh. Every time you see Lord in all caps, it is Yahweh. It is the personal name of God. So in verse 15, God says to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. There are many gods, many Elohim, but there is only one Yahweh. There's only one who can say I am because this name, it speaks of his essence. It speaks of his nature, of his being, that he is, get this, the self-existent God. Only God is self-sufficient. Only God is self-sustaining. Only God needs nothing. Only God has no beginning. Only God has no end. He does not change. He has no limits. He has no equals. You cannot contain him. You cannot control him. He is the creator and the author and the ruler over all things. He is in a category completely by himself. He's outside of time. He's outside of history. He's outside of space. Yet he works in time. He manifests his presence at Mount Horeb. He is holy, completely other, unique. I am. No one else is like him. And only he can say, I am who I am. Apart from all else, completely self-existent, self-sustaining, eternal, and unchanging. In Revelation 1.8 He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. What is your name? Who are you? What is it that is distinguished about your essence and your being that makes you unique? And God simply says, I am. I am. The grammar shows it. He simply is. But the fire also illustrates it, doesn't it? Burning yet not consuming. God needs no fuel. Some of us do. Some of us need some coffee, some breakfast, something like that. God needs nothing. He's dependent on no one. God is not bound by the laws of the world that he has made. He exists in and of himself. So Moses asks, who are you? What is your name? Who is it that promises to be with me? Whose power will it be that fulfills these promises? And to this all-important question, who are you? The answer comes, I am who I am. I am the God who is with your fathers. I am the God who is speaking to you now. And I am the God who will be with you, Moses, at every step of the way. Although perhaps this name had been somewhat lost to memory while they were in Egypt, God now tells Moses, And he says, tell them, verse 14, that the I am has sent to you. 
Tell them that I am not some new God. I am the God of their fathers. And tell them that you speak for me. And notice in verse 15, he says, this is his name forever. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I love this. The God who remembers his people is to be remembered by his people. What God was about to do for them in the Exodus would be the cause not just for their worship, but for the worship of their children and the worship of their grandchildren. A foundation for the glory and praise and fear and gratitude and admiration of every generation to come. God was making himself known to Moses. And he was about to make himself known to the world. He was about to make his name great before his people. And never again would there be any doubt about who this God was. Never again would someone have to ask, what is your name? What are you like? He is the great I am. He would be forever known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought his people out of Egypt. This name is about to become famous. God has revealed his name and himself to Moses here in the burning bush. Following this part of the conversation, we come to sort of a a summary and the wrap-up of this part of their conversation. In verses 16 through 22, God gives Moses some instruction, along with some predictions and promises about what is going to happen. First of all, Moses is to go speak to the elders. He's told Moses generically, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to lead them out. So if that's going to happen, first of all, the Israelites themselves need to hear about it. So Moses is told this in verse 16. God says, go And gather the elders of Israel together. These would have been the family heads, the heads of tribes. Gather them together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. The message that this newly minted prophet was supposed to proclaim is simple. He says, go tell the elders, God spoke, God sees, and God is about to act. God spoke, God sees, and God is about to act. This is always the message that God's people need, isn't it? Don't we always need to be reminded that God has spoken? We need the word of the Lord. We need to be reminded that God sees. He is not distant or disconnected. And we need to know about what God has done and what God will do. That's why we gather here every Sunday, to remind ourselves that God has spoken, that he is there, that he is with us, that he sees. And we need to remember what he's done and remember what it is that he has promised to do. This is what God's spokesmen always communicate. We always need these reminders. This is our hope in every age. For the elders of Israel, this announcement meant that the time had finally come for their deliverance. Remember, Genesis 15 records that God had told Abraham that their captivity would be long, 400 years, that they would be afflicted, but that God would bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they would come out with great possessions. This was the promise that had been made, and now Moses gets to go tell the people, God's about to do it. The time has come. Joseph, on his deathbed, had repeated this promise. He had told his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you, 
and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Moses' message announced to the people that these promises were true, and God is on the move. The time had come, and God assures Moses that unlike last time, remember last time Moses tried to help and the people weren't interested, unlike last time, this time they will listen to him. They will receive him. What an encouragement to Moses. What's the difference? Well, the difference is this time God is in it. This time it's God's idea. This time it's God's timing. And this time it would be God's power, not Moses's, that would accomplish their deliverance. So the timing was right. But Moses also is supposed to make a speech to Pharaoh. Look in verse 18. After saying that they will listen to your voice, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, this is the name Yahweh here, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. This speech has two simple elements. One, that God has spoken. They come to Pharaoh, not in the name of Moses, not on on behalf of the Israelites. They come to Pharaoh in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh. It is his authority that they bear. And Pharaoh's to let them go and worship God. As we'll soon see, this Pharaoh has no idea who Yahweh is, but he's about to find out. God predicts for Moses that unlike the elders of Israel who listen and receive the message, Pharaoh will not listen. Verse 19 says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Moses needed to know that Pharaoh's refusal was part of the plan. I think a lot of times it's easy for us to sort of slip into this, what I like to call open door theology, that if the door is open, it means it's God's will to go through. And if the door is closed and there's resistance, it means that it must not be God's will. Well, Moses needed to know that, listen, when you go back, Pharaoh's going to want none of it. But that doesn't mean that this isn't my will. He's telling him this ahead of time so that he knows. Because Moses may have been tempted to think that maybe the plan has changed. Or maybe God is no longer with us. God, I did what you said, and Pharaoh said no. Don't be surprised, God says to Moses. Pharaoh isn't going to be willing to do this. But this prediction also assures him that although Pharaoh will reject this message, things are going right on schedule because God's plan is to compel him. This is what we like to call a little bit of encouragement, motivation to cooperate with the request. And we see what God says he's going to do in verse 20. He says, So I will stretch out my hand, it's a statement of power, and strike Egypt, that's a statement of judgment, with all the wonders that I will do in it. What God is going to do is going to display and manifest his glory. And he says, after that, he will let you go. So Moses can know what to expect. And these plagues and these miracles are not just to break down Pharaoh's resistance. They are also in part judgment on the nation of their oppressor, oppressors. He's going to strike Egypt. Egypt has been striking these people for years, oppressing them afflicting them. And God has seen not only the suffering of his people and is going to relieve them, he's also seeing what caused their suffering, and he's going to deal with it. 
There is grace and judgment mingled together, woven together. And this is how God's deliverance always works. We see it in Exodus. We see it at the cross that judgment and grace come hand in hand. God has seen the need and he will show mercy. He's also seen the Egyptians' cruelty and he is going to repay them. But it's not just the oppressors who are going to be repaid. Notice that there's also blessings for God's covenant people. He says in verse 21, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is a remarkable reversal. I mean, think about this. The people who once feared them. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 12, as they grew in number, the Egyptians were in dread of them, were also the same people who once helped to kill their sons. Pharaoh had deputized the whole nation and said, throw all the male children into the river. But God was going to reverse this, and these people would actually become a means of blessing the children of Israel. Plunder is a wartime word. Plunder is what happens after you win the battle. The spoils are yours to enjoy. But God's word to Moses is this. Listen, I'm going to fight for you. And your part in it is simply going to be receiving the plunder, sharing in the victor's spoils. And these spoils would equip them and supply them for the journey that lay ahead. Only the great I am could end their mistreatment. Only the great I am could reverse centuries worth of oppression and slavery. Only the I am could restore blessing to them. A people who had nothing, who were considered as property, would be given riches and supplies and wealth, plundering the Egyptians. The God who is self-existent, powerful, glorious, he is able to do this, and he will. It's important for us as we read this story to remember Friends, this is not just who God was. We have to recognize today that this is who God is. He is the great I am. He has not changed. His power, his nature, his purposes remains the same. And this means that what we observe in Moses' encounter with God speaks also to our relationship with God today. And from this, we draw several important theological truths, and we'll close with these. First of all, if I can leave you with this, we need to remember deliverance depends on God's initiative. God appeared in this story. God spoke and God acted. And this isn't the last time that God will speak, that God will appear, that God will come down to deliver his people. He has done this for us in Christ This is a beautiful picture of our own salvation. We have a God who seeks and saves the lost. He comes down to provide for us, to pay the price for our redemption. Your salvation and my salvation, if you know Christ today, is because God has seen you and he came down to deliver, to provide what you needed because he initiated your salvation. Deliverance depends on God's initiative. And secondly, this deliverance is found and it is experienced, get this, in knowing God. It's in knowing God that we experience his deliverance. Roberts and Wilson, in their great little book, Echoes of Eden, put it this way. 
only by knowing God as the unchangeable, incomparable, eternal, self-existent, merciful, gracious, and compassionate God that he has revealed himself to be on Mount Horeb. It's only by knowing him that Moses, Israel, or anyone who follows him today can have any hope of approaching, obeying, or worshiping him. Salvation is not found in us imagining what God must be like. It's, in fa- it's found in God revealing himself to us. Salvation is not found in us stumbling along looking for truth, but in drawing near to God himself and knowing him and being known by him. I have to ask you, do you know God? Not do you know about God, not can you describe him to me, but have you had a personal encounter with the living God? And has it left you changed? Moses would never be the same after this day on the mountain. I highly doubt any of you have seen a burning bush. But God is in the business today of making people like us into new creations. And he does this through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. Through the work of his son Jesus Christ on the cross, this redemption has been accomplished. And then the Spirit of God takes this work of Christ, his atonement for sins, his resurrection power, and the Spirit brings it to bear in our hearts and makes us new. And that is an encounter with the living God. That's not something you hear about, simply. It's not something you understand from a purely intellectual standpoint. It is something that is profoundly experienced. It is so radical, so life-changing that Jesus calls it a new birth. Being born again. Day one of a new kind of life that it will be forever different and changed than who you were before. Do you know this God? Have you encountered him? And has his power, his self-sustaining, eternal, unchanging glory left an imprint on you? This is the personal God. Not a God who is distant, but a God who draws near and reveals himself and his name to us. And you can know him. You can know him through his son, Jesus Christ. You can have a relationship with him. And be a recipient of his grace. And just like God made the ground holy because it was near to him, God can make you holy. Different, set apart from the world. Not perfect, but changing. On a trajectory to one day when we see him face to face, being made completely like him. That can happen. And if you've not tasted this grace and this glory, that can change today. The God that Moses encountered desires for you to come face to face with him today. Maybe I can speak to the kids for just a moment. It's great that a lot of your parents know God, but you need to know him. You need to know him for yourself. So that he's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and mom, and dad. But so that you can say he is my God, and I know him. I believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting in him to be my savior. His spirit can change you and make you new, make you alive. And whether you're 5 or 15 or 25, it's not enough that your parents know God. You need to know him. You need to know him.
this holy God. If I can encourage you, his holiness can be transmitted to you. But that holiness is also a danger. For those who do not know him, for those who persist in their sin, for those who remain in this place of unbelief, that holiness is a threat. God says, do not come near because I am dangerous, because I judge sin. I am holy, holy, holy. And if you're not interested in what I'm saying to you today, you say, that's great that you think you know God and that other people like that. I don't know how badly I'm really in the mood for that right now. Let me plead with you. You desperately need to know him because otherwise his holiness is a danger to you. Hebrews chapter 12 puts it this way. Our God is a consuming fire. And that's actually a word of judgment. It's a word of warning. And ironically, the only way that you can escape the wrath of God is to draw near to the same God, to receive his grace while the time is still at hand. You have a chance today to hear the good news that God is offering you salvation in a relationship with him, and you can say yes to him today. You can repent of your sin, you can lay aside your pride, your self-sufficiency, your self-dependence, and acknowledge that you need God and that he is enough. This is called faith. You trust that God is who he says he is and that he will keep his promise to save you if you trust him. That's what faith means. You trust in God, believing in him, depending on him. Do you know God? If you don't, today that can change. I love what Jeremiah 9 says. Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. None of that really matters. But let him who boasts, boast in this. Here's what matters. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, Yahweh, the I am. The Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I hope you won't go from here today without coming to know him. You do not know him already. And then finally, deliverance. This deliverance depends on God's initiative, and it's found in knowing and encountering God. And then finally, deliverance, salvation, depends on God's power and comes through God's appointed instrument. It depends on God's power and comes through God's appointed instrument. God raised up this man Moses to deliver his people. An imperfect man through whom great wonders were performed. How much greater is the deliverance that we have through the perfect man, the man Christ Jesus. In Christ, the worker and the instrument, the power and and the, the tool are one. God saw our need and in Christ came down to deliver us. I love Philippians 2. It says, being found in human form, speaking of Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who is God came down. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, listen to this, the name that is above every name. The name that is so holy, the Jews were afraid to even pronounce it. The name of Yahweh. That name has been bestowed upon him. The name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
I love it when you get to the New Testament, you see that Jesus stands up and says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. When the mob came to arrest Jesus in the garden, he asks, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers, I am he. And they draw back and fall to the ground. Because the one who speaks is the same one who spoke from the bush on Mount Sinai. Jesus is the I am. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus Christ is the instrument of our salvation. He is the power that accomplishes our deliverance. God has appointed him to be his means of salvation. In Christ, captives are set free. In Christ, the unholy are made holy. Sinners are made saints. And in Christ, we who were separated from God are brought near to enjoy his presence, to experience the reversal of what, and the restoration of what was lost in the garden. And just as there would be no exodus without following Moses, there is no salvation for us outside of Christ. He alone is God's appointed means, the lone instrument of salvation. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And because of this, it is before Jesus the name above every name, that every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, these are profound truths that must be understood, must be believed, but also truths that ought to be rejoiced in. This is not just a theology lesson. This is an invitation to worship. This is our God. This is who he is. This is how he works. And we who know Christ have not only seen these things to be true in this text. We've experienced it, haven't we? We've experienced it ourselves. So let me ask, what will be your response today? Like the children of Israel, we were redeemed so that we might forever worship him, the great I am. And my prayer for us today is that we would stand in awe and glory in his name. Rejoice in his marvelous mercy and celebrate the fact that this God has made himself known to us. Father, we bow before you now in awe that you would draw near and reveal yourself to sinful people like us. Lord, we confess that we've merely scratched the surface of the mystery today. The fullness of who you are the depth of your being and your essence, it is truly beyond us. But you have revealed certain things to us that we can see, that we can understand. And Lord, for what you have shown us today, we thank you. We ask that you would help us to believe it. And we now rejoice, God, in all that you have done for us and all that you have shown us in your word and in our own experience. Thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself knowable. I pray, God, that you would bring many more to know you, that they might worship you as well. Amen.